Okay, grab your Bible and uh, let's, or your device, and let's get ready to get in the Word of God this morning. We're going to start a new series next week. Let me just pitch that real quick before we begin the Easter message this morning. Next week, we're going to start a new sermon series called Heaven and Hell. Uh, and in that series, which will begin probably with a roundtable first next week, um, we're going to mix it up a little bit. And uh, sometimes uh, our teaching is a little bit controversial. Let's use the word thought-provoking. Thought-provoking makes you really get in the Word of God and dig and consider and think about what God's trying to communicate and what He wants us to do. This is one of those series, Heaven and Hell. Uh, and next week, we will take up really the, the topic of Jesus didn't die and rise again so that you could be saved and go to heaven and live for eternity. And if that's your understanding of the New Testament, then you may not have understood the New Testament correctly. Yeah, I know. Let that sink in for a minute. We'll take that up next week. So I'll see you uh, next week. And uh, Pastor Dave and Pastor Jeremy will all be roundtabling the opening of that next week. So let's get to the Easter message this morning, okay? The reason that Easter is such a big deal to us because as Christians uh, all over the world this morning are celebrating Easter, the meaning of what's happening about the resurrection of Jesus Christ has become the defining moment of our Christian faith. Everything we believe about Jesus, about the forgiveness of our sins, about the confidence and assurance of eternal life that John's been telling us about for weeks, it all rests our whole understanding our whole theology rests on what happened 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem. Let me say it more concisely. If the resurrection is true, then what you and I believe is also true. If the resurrection is false, then everything you and I believe is also false. Now, since we can be interactive this morning, I've got several questions. Some are true, false. Some are multiple choice. I've woven them into the sermon. Here comes number one. What gives the gospel its meaning? Is it A, Jesus' crucifixion? B, Jesus' resurrection? C, Jesus' burial? Or is it D, Paul's interpretation? What gives the gospel its meaning? If you're answering, it is the resurrection, B, that gives the gospel its meaning. It means that your understanding is also aligned with the writers of the New Testament and the first disciples because this was the conclusion of the original followers of Jesus Christ. Let me read you some of what they say at 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. It all hinges on the resurrection. That was their conclusion and that's also our conclusion. Many uh, listening this morning may have questions about the resurrection. Now, I don't have questions about the fact of the resurrection, but I have lots of questions too. I have big questions like, 
intermediate states and what does it mean to be fully human and what is our vocation? And we're going to address all of those in the coming weeks. So if you have some questions this morning and you feel like, well, maybe I'm not such a good Christian because I, I have questions and, and, and things I would like to have answered, I want you to know this is exactly the way the first disciples or this is the apostles. They had questions too. Uh, the beauty of reading the story uh, about Thomas. Thomas is such a fascinating character because Thomas is us. He has questions. He wants answers to his questions, not simplistic, childish answers. He wants logical, deep, profound answers to the questions that he's asking. So if you have questions this morning about faith, about Christ, about the resurrection, I want you to know that it's okay to ask your questions. I think it's important that we do ask our questions. It's acceptable to have adult questions about faith that need substantial answers. I would also say if you're new to Christianity, uh, maybe you think Christianity wants you to take a blind leap of faith, and that's really what, what faith and what Christianity are all about. That's not the meaning of Christianity. Our faith is not uh, belief based on legend. Our faith is based on unimpeachable evidence. This is very important. Our faith is not based in legend or tradition. Our faith is based on unimpeachable evidence. Throughout even just my brief lifetime, I've been able to listen to a lot of skeptical opinions. Uh, almost every uh, Christmas or Easter season, we're seeing articles come out, and in the old days, the you know Time magazine would come out with some kind of big scandal about the resurrection. It didn't really happen, or we misunderstood it, or he really wasn't dead, or there really wasn't a Jesus, or he really wasn't crucified, or he really did. It, it never ends. And, and in your lifetime, maybe you've heard some of the skeptics. Let, let me see if I can summarize where the skeptics are at this present hour of history. Skeptics once argued that there never was a real man named Jesus. But today, no credible scholar holds the opinion that Jesus did not exist. It's incontrovertible. Far beyond just the Bible, there is historical evidence. There is archaeological evidence. There is literary evidence. There is all kinds of evidence supporting the claims of Jesus Christ. And today, no credible scholar, using the word credible very intentionally, no credible scholar holds to the idea that there was not a real man named Jesus who lived in Israel. This historical figure was crucified. He was buried in a tomb in Jerusalem. It happened to be the tomb, a borrowed tomb from a what we would call a Supreme Court justice, a member of the Sanhedrin of, of Israel, uh, and Jesus was put into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. So today the skeptics are left with only this. They say the resurrection was a legend which grew over time, and after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, Christians in Europe developed this legend, this fairy tale, about this larger-than-life person who did miracles and was killed and rose from the grave and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. It's a legend that grew over hundreds of years. Now, I'm being very careful here to go slow because a legend, by definition, 
by what it really is. A legend is something that takes hundreds of years of embellishment. That It's like a snowball, just keeps getting bigger. The legend just keeps growing. You know, is Jesus some legendary character? May have started as a normal man, but then it just snowballed and they told more and more tall tales until it became, wow, he's the son of God who died and, and did miracles and rose from the dead. You know, th this kind of thing. Here's the thing about a legend. If you make fantastic, legendary claims and you make them too close to the date of the actual event, the problem is there are people still alive who saw the event. If the claims of, of legendary claims, uh, in other words, if we make legendary claims about someone who's living right now, there are people living right now who could say, no, I was there. Here's how it went down. Here's what I saw. Here's my eyewitness testimony. And people could debunk the legend. For a legend to work, the legend has to be far removed from the actual uh, date that the events happened. So if the events happened around 30 AD, the legend would have to be into the hundreds of years later that it developed in order for the whole legend scheme to work. So here's why this is important. It's important this morning for us to, to ask this question. When did people start believing on the resurrection of Jesus? Is that 30 AD? Is it 40 AD? 50? Was it 300 AD? You know, was it not until Billy Graham in 1950 started preaching across America, suddenly people believe, hey, there's a resurrection? Or was it not until 1500s when Martin Luther begins a European Reformation and, and Calvin and everybody follow in that? Was that the beginning of the legend of Jesus and the legend of the resurrection? Well, let me give you some facts this morning, not conjecture, but facts, and you can decide for yourself whether the resurrection is a legend or was it a fact. First of all, you need to know that when these events happened 2,000 years ago, hope was lost. We don't begin with what looks like a victory. We begin with what looks like a stunning, jarring defeat. 2,000 years ago, all hope was lost. Jesus Christ was betrayed. He was arrested. He was violently whipped, humiliated, and then sentenced to die on a Roman cross. And after a morning and an afternoon of torture hanging on the cross, he died and was buried in the grave. Those who followed Jesus saw all of this take place and their hopes and their dreams were shattered when it happened. They were crushed. They were demoralized. Every anticipation that they had about Jesus being the Messiah was gone. And all the hope that they had for a better tomorrow, a better Israel, a better life, uh, uh, love conquering hate, good conquering evil, it all died with Jesus Christ. On a personal level, they had left behind everything to follow Jesus. The tax collector left his business. The fishermen had left their uh, entrepreneurship. They had all gone to follow Jesus Christ. They had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was God's chosen one who was going to rule Israel and he was going to set everything right. 
That's what they believed about Messiah. But when Jesus was killed, all hope was lost. The disciples are now stunned at the crucifixion. They are devastated, dejected. They're all asking, how could this happen? What just happened in the last 24 hours? We went from this high of he's the Messiah to now he's dead. How could this happen? And they were asking some profound questions. What does the crucifixion mean? And I would challenge you to ask yourself, what does the crucifixion mean? Historically, we know what a crucifixion meant, but you need to also go beyond that and ask, what did his crucifixion mean? You see, well, let me ask you a question. I'll let you interpret. Jews who believed in a Messiah did not expect him to, A, rebuild the temple. They did not expect him to die. They did not expect him to defeat the enemies of God's people. Or D, they did not expect him to cleanse the temple. Yeah, those who believed in the Messiah certainly did not expect him to die. They did not see that in the Old Testament. They did not expect him to die. We can easily say to Peter and James and John and those guys, hold on, don't be depressed. Sunday morning's coming. Everything's going to be fine. But that was not where their head was. And if we had been living at that time, we wouldn't have had that perspective either because here's the big point. No one expected the crucifixion. It just wasn't on the radar. Uh, and I want to pause right here in this message to maybe even talk about the coming messages. Listen, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection and those events that followed cause us to go back and look at the Old Testament through a different lens now. Things that we didn't see in the Old Testament, things that were not clear to us, it's like it all came into focus suddenly when viewed through the lens of the crucifixion and resurrection. Things that were blurry are now crisp and jump off the page at us. We read the Bible differently when our worldview and understanding change. Even in this modern era, as your understanding is changing, as you are being transformed as a disciple of Christ, it should cause you to look at the Bible and see it with more clarity. See it through different lenses as you mature. But the big point here is no one saw the crucifixion coming, and I'm not being critical of first century Christians. If you think I'm beating up Peter, James, and John, I'm not. If we were there, we probably would have been exactly like them. They're good representatives of us. And I think all of us are being challenged right now to see what God is doing in our own generation. I've had a lot of questions about, you know, is, is this whole pandemic God's judgment upon the earth? I want you to know, if you think you can answer that question, you're delusional. You can't... I hear people out there now saying, see, this is God. You're speaking for God as a prophet if you do that, and you can't do that. You don't know that this is God's judgment on planet Earth or on America because of her sins. It's life on planet Earth in a fallen creation. It's what you're experiencing. God is not sitting out there waiting just to zap us and hurt us and punish us and make us sick and put us in the hospital. That's a miss characterization of who God is. Remember what we just studied for weeks in the book of John. God is love. 
That's what his character is, not vengeance and hatred and I can't wait to punish you. Uh, Satan wants you to misrepresent who God is. God is love. Don't get caught up in all of that, that hype. What I'm saying to you is we need to be challenged right now to say this is a worldwide event. And what is God doing? What, what is he asking us to do? What does this, what opportunities does this moment present to us? And I feel like I'd go through a long list right now, which is not part of my Easter sermon, but you've rediscovered family. Wow, there's a wonderful outcome. You know, maybe you've rediscovered prayer in the last few weeks. There's a wonderful outcome. Maybe you've rediscovered quiet time. Although if you're here at the Herald House, there's not much quiet time going on over here. It's pandemonium normally. And maybe too, if you've got little kids at home. But what I'm saying is there can be many wonderful outcomes, even in the midst of a crisis. I am God's child and he's right here with me in my crisis. And I'm challenged to say, what is God doing in my generation? My point is right now you do understand with clarity that all of us have been caught up in things that do not matter. And you can't do those things now. You can't engage in those things. You can't participate in many of those things. And you know what? Life goes on, doesn't it? it, it here we are. And we're still God's children. And we still have our family. And we still have our faith. And we still have our church. And we still have our God. And we're still functioning. And life is moving on. It's moving on outside of our old routine and outside of the old things we used to do. God is bigger than all of that. And maybe he's pushed some things that don't really matter that much out of our life because maybe we've been so consumed with things that don't matter that we've been missing the big opportunities that God wants us to engage in right now. There's a whole world that needs to hear the gospel. There are, there are wonderful people that we know who are not followers of Christ and they need to be followers of Christ. They need to be discipled by us. And we need to learn from the mistakes of the past. These guys in the first century really didn't see what God was doing in their own generation. Let's learn from that and let's have our spiritual eyes open this morning to see what is God doing with us right now and let's engage in the mission. The message this morning is not Christ is risen, yay, let's go home, back to our lives tomorrow. The message this morning is Christ is risen from the dead. Now what? Therefore, dot, 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 we should, dot, dot, dot. He wants us to, dot, dot, dot. We have to fill in those blanks this morning for the resurrection to come to its full meaning in our own lives. But for the ancients, crucifixion meant much more than death. Uh, the Romans didn't crucify you just because they didn't have bullets. That's oversimplistic. The Romans crucified you because they wanted to send a message with death. Crucifixion meant total, complete humiliation. It meant that you cannot resist the powers of this world. Crucifixion meant you cannot resist Rome or you will be crushed under the machine. Crucifixion meant how dare you defy the world system? How dare you defy the status quo. How dare you defy the one world order? How dare you define what is popular and vogue and in trend? How dare you try to change the world? You want to try to change the world? Well, guess what? Rome will crush you. And that was crucifixion. It was complete torture and humiliation. 
And let me say to you, when Jesus died, there are no believers standing there saying, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. See, look, we're winning right now. Jesus is dying for our sins. No one said that. They're running, they're hiding, they're crying. They're not saying, yay, we won. They're saying, oh my, we've lost. Our hopes are crushed. Now, later they would interpret Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. But when it happened, no one expected a crucifixion because the Jews had no understanding that Messiah would die, only that he would win and he would make all things right. We believe Jesus is the Messiah. Look, he's dying. We must not have been right. All of our dreams are shattered now. We have just lost. He's dead. They could not see the narrative of the Old Testament because the lenses they were looking through were dirty with tradition. They were dirty. They were polluted with religion. And so when they looked through the lenses into the Old Testament, they only, no one ever taught them as children coming up. Messiah will die for your sins and rise again. That's why they had no understanding of it. And maybe you grew up in an evangelical Baptist, non-nominational church of Christ at Pentecostal uh, Assemblies of God background, Lutheran method. We all have some common flavors here. Listen, we are struggling with the same things. The lenses we grew up with looking through have also clouded our reading of Scripture. And it's good sometimes to say, I want to take off those traditions and clean my glasses a little bit and look at it maybe through a fresh set of lenses. You see, they couldn't see what God was doing, so they saw the crucifixion as a loss. We have a common colloquialism today. Hindsight is 20-20. Hindsight gives you perfect vision. We can't see forward. All we see is the forest, the trees, the way we can't see anything. But when we turn around and look backwards, things make sense to us. They didn't understand what was happening while it was happening. But in the immediate hours and days to follow, they would turn around and look backwards. Bing! And it would begin to come into focus for them. It's only after something revolutionary and life-changing has happened in our lives that we understand something revolutionary and life-changing just happened in our lives. When 9-11 was happening, all we could think about is, oh, God, help us, we are under attack. Run for your lives. What does it mean? Hunker down. Buy gold. Sell, sell stocks. Get cash. Pump water. Pack the pantry. Get gas. We don't know what it means. And we were hunkering in fear. Well, it comes through time now that we pass through that. But you know what? It became a pivotal moment for our culture because it forever changed some things. We're in a worldwide pandemic right now. Guess what? We're going to come through it. God's going to sustain his children. But it will change some things forever in our culture and in our society about how we do business, about how we go to school, maybe about how we do church. Maybe about how we do small groups. Maybe about how we make disciples. How we use technology. How we value family. There'll be some short-term. Changes. Then some of those will fade away, but there'll be some lasting long-term things that this will affect. The crucifixion 
and the resurrection are the defining moments of human history. I think if we can lock on to that this morning, you'll really begin to see things in the New Testament differently. These, just the same way 9-11 changed some things about our life, just the way this pandemic is making us rethink how we do life. I want you to know that the crucifixion and the resurrection eternally, historically, I mean, really, that's not a good comparison because one is a million times greater, but they were life-altering, human history-altering events, the crucifixion and resurrection. Let me say it this way. They shifted the entire paradigm for planet Earth. They shifted the entire paradigm for humanity. The resurrection began what God's people had been longing for, the beginning of a new creation. Jesus became the first human being in a corruptible body of flesh to die and be raised in an incorruptible body of flesh. He is the first fruits of them that slept and it is no coincidence that he was crucified on Passover and that he rose from the grave on the feast of first fruits. He is the first and being the first he has opened a whole new understanding for us and a whole new way for us. All right, let me ask you a question now. True or false, Jesus' disciples believed resurrection was a normal event, so they were open to the possibility of Jesus' resurrection. True or false? The answer would be false. They did not think resurrection was a normal event, and it was not even on their radar that this beloved friend and leader of theirs, this rabbi of theirs, who was now dead, would come back to life, wasn't even on the radar. Let me read a passage from John's writing, the Gospel of John, that eyewitness we've been studying for several weeks. Here's what he wrote in the Gospel, chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon and uh, the, the other, Simon Peter and the other disciple, which is John, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with John, the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in, didn't burst through the door. Then Simon Peter comes, boom, 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 <laughs> can you hear it? And he burst right into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Verse 7, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Here's a curious verse, number 10. Then they went back to their homes. As I was reading that this week, I'm like, wow, it sounds like us on Sunday. We hear a life-changing 
message from God's word and how does it actually change our lives? It doesn't. We just go back home. We just go back home. What's for lunch? Okay. What are we doing now? What reruns are on tonight? Okay, let's get back with the old life. We're missing the big thing that God's doing. They saw. What did they do? How did it change their life? They just went back home. Just went back home and saw. So here we go. True or false? It is clear from the scriptures that the disciples expected Jesus to return from the dead. False. They did not expect Jesus. They did not expect to ever see Jesus again alive. Now, if you say this morning, Pastor, you are beating these guys up as ignorant and unlearned and uh, imperceptive. Yes, but no. If we were there, I think we would have probably acted the same way. My point is they weren't paying attention to what Jesus was saying while he was alive. And they're not paying attention now that he's died on the cross. And if you think Jesus maybe wasn't clear, maybe you think, well, when Jesus was talking, he talked in such a way that nobody could really figure out what he was trying to say with all those parables and and stories. And it was just confusing. Uh, Was it just confusing? Let me read you the words of Jesus from another of these disciples, a really young guy who was discipled by Simon Peter, who's a boy or a teenager at this time seeing these things unfold. When Mark records the story of Jesus, he's writing down Jesus' words as he and Peter remember them. Listen to the words of Jesus as recorded by Mark in chapter 8, verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. That's pretty clear. Mark 9, 31. For he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed... After three days, he will rise. Well, that seems pretty clear too, doesn't it? How about the next chapter, Mark 10, verse 33, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, meaning the Romans. And they will mock him and they will spit on him and they will flog him. I mean, he's calling it shot by shot and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. That's not only clear, that's prophetically clear. That's detailed clear. What about Mark chapter 14, verse 27? And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. No, Jesus was very clear in what he was saying. It's just that they were looking through cloudy lenses. It's just that their hearts and their ears were dull of hearing and understanding. You know, it's it's sometimes like our parents will say to us, I've said to you a thousand times, we just didn't hear it. Or if we heard it, it didn't, no light bulb went off. There was no action, no comprehension really. Jesus was telling his disciples they weren't getting it. So 
next big thought. No one expected. If you didn't expect a crucifixion, you certainly didn't expect a resurrection. One of the things I think is very clear by all of the accounts is there are no disciples gathered at the tomb on Sunday morning with party hats, little horns that roll out. No one had sparklers. They're not all standing there gathered around holding hands, singing, you know, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. There was no sunrise service at the garden tomb of Jesus Christ because he was dead and dead people stay dead and dead people are dead and dead people are not coming back. When Jesus died, they expected him to stay dead because that's what dead people do. They stay dead. Mary Magdalene goes down to the tomb. We just read from John 20 on Sunday morning with spices to embalm Jesus. In her thinking, she's already getting her speech ready. I'm talking to a lot of people. And whenever you think about tomorrow, you have to get all the speeches ready in your head, don't you? Tomorrow I've got to talk to this person. I got to do this. I got to have this conversation. You go through the whole conversation in your head. You have a kindred spirit in Mary Magdalene. She's like thinking through, okay, when I get there, Soldiers are going to confront me. I need to have this posture and I need to say this. I'm going to have to get somebody to roll away from the stone. They're not going to roll roll away the stone because that's not their job, but I'm going to try to get them to, and here's what I'm going to say, and here's what I'm going to do. But when she gets there to ask them to roll away the stone, she expects to find a dead Jesus, not a living Christ or not a missing Christ. And when she saw the body of Jesus was missing because the stone was already rolled away, she ran to tell Peter and John what she had discovered. John 20 makes it very clear. Her own words reveal what her thoughts were. Here are her words. They have taken the Lord. They have stolen his body and I do not know what they've done with him. That's what she said because that's what she believed. Peter and John run all the way to the tomb. They go inside. They discover the tomb is empty. And what dramatic action did Peter and John take when they discovered the tomb is empty? They went home. They went home. Let me fill in the lines. They went home more discouraged than they already were. Dot, dot, dot. They went home with a new level of depression that they didn't have five minutes ago. Not only did they kill the one we thought was the Messiah, now they've desecrated the tomb and stolen the body. I mean, how morbid, how dishonorable for them to do this. Listen, okay, so maybe he's not the Messiah, but do you have to treat the corpse with such disrespect that you would essentially dig him up and throw him somewhere else so nobody knew where his body was so they went home here's what's clear none of the disciples of christ are running through the city saying he's alive he's alive they're all running through the city saying he's missing he's missing he's dead somebody stole the body what did you do with the body where have you taken jesus i'm just trying to drive home the understanding this morning that in those first few hours No one ever expected to see Jesus alive again. They did not expect a resurrection. Well, then we know from the scripture he rose and was seen. If Jesus has risen from the grave, 
Now what? Well, think about this. If Jesus rose from the grave and went back to heaven without appearing to anyone, let's just say in the dark of that early Sunday morning, like it was this morning when little uh, ministers of Christ were dropping bags of Easter eggs on your front porch this morning, in the dark of the night, uh, uh, when it's early morning, Jesus rises from the dead. What if he just ascends back to heaven right then? No appearances, gone uh, to be with the Father, and no one ever saw him. Do you understand how cruel that would have been for the followers of Christ? For God to have the power to raise himself from the dead, but not to reveal himself to anyone? No, the followers of Jesus needed to see the risen Christ. And God knew that. He knew that we needed that deeply. Christianity needed that. Individuals that he loved. Not just the movement. Individuals he loved. John, Peter, Mary. These people that he was discipling, they needed to see a risen Savior. So, the risen Christ now doesn't go to heaven. Instead, he begins to meet with people he loves. He appears first to Mary Magdalene, one of the greatest proofs that this story was not made up. The women have a prominent part in this story in a time and a culture that wouldn't put a woman on the stand in a court in Israel. They wouldn't allow them to give testimony. A woman becomes the first preacher of the gospel and the primary witness to the resurrected Christ. No one would have made this up in the first century in this way. It rings with authenticity because Christ did value both the men and the women disciples. And she was the first one to the tomb. And he did commission her first and appear to her first. But then the apostles, and then after that, hundreds of people experienced the resurrected Christ. Some in groups saw him too on the road to Emmaus. The uh, eleven in a locked room, and later the 12 together in a locked room. Uh, well, the 10 and the 11, the Judas is gone, but Thomas wasn't in the first meeting. Thomas was in the second meeting, is what I'm trying to say. But all of these people who saw the risen Christ came to the same conclusion. Jesus is alive, not in a mystical ghost kind of fashion, in a very physical fashion, he's alive. We are touching him. We are eating with him. He has bodily, he's enjoying the food. We're drinking the wine. We're having fellowship. We're high-fiving. He's real. He's back bodily. He was alive. He was dead. He's back alive in some physical form yet again. And he is who he claimed to be. This morning, what I'm trying to say is we don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead because our parents told us so. Although there's nothing wrong with that, and parents should tell you that. We don't believe in Jesus Christ because our Sunday school teacher told us so, although that's a good thing. We don't believe in Jesus Christ because the Bible tells us so. We believe in Jesus Christ in a much more complex understanding because there's evidence so reliable that it cannot be dismissed. We believe in the resurrected Christ because Matthew, a converted government official, who was an eyewitness to the events of the crucifixion and resurrection. He wrote about it, and Matthew himself believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mark, who was a young man being discipled by Peter, who himself was an eyewitness, as was Peter. Mark and Peter both believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke was a medical doctor 
with all that means even to our modern understanding. He was educated, he was respected, he was logical, he was a man of science. Luke, the physician, he was himself an eyewitness to these events. And he interviewed people, he wrote down all the facts. Luke believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John, who was one of the closest friends of Jesus, John was an eyewitness of these events. We've been studying the writings of John. He said, our hands have handled, our eyes have seen, our ears have heard. I'm an eyewitness to these events, and he believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Gets even better. James, the brother of Jesus, he's not mentioned as a believer in any of the gospel narratives. There's a reason for that. He's not a believer. I mean, just think logically for a minute. What would it take for you to believe your brother is the son of God? <laughs> if you've got a brother, you, you know exactly what you, what's going through your head right now. He'd have to die and rise again from the dead for me to believe he's the son of God because I grew up with him. I know him. He knows me. And I don't believe he's the son of God. James thought his brother was crazy. And the, the times James is mentioned, brethren, in the scripture, he's mentioned as taunting Jesus. Hey, Mr. Son of God, why don't you go do your Son of God thing? Hey, Mr. I'm the Messiah, why don't you go down to the temple and reveal yourself as the Messiah? You know, you're telling us here at the kitchen table, you're the Son of God. Why don't you go down there and take out a billboard and tell all of Jerusalem you're the Son of God? They're going to think you're as crazy as I know you are. You're nuts, man. Well, that was James' position through the events, the narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But something changed on Easter Sunday for James. Not James the fisherman, James the brother of Jesus, different James. Something changed for Jesus' brother on Easter Sunday morning. Can you see Jesus appearing to Mary, appearing to the eleven, appearing here, appearing there? And then he goes to the home of his own kinfolk. Maybe he comes through a locked door there too and materializes in the living room after the family buried their loved one three days ago. Well, that'd freak you out, wouldn't it? What's for lunch? And he sits down and he says, no, I am who I claim to be. Touch me, handle me. We don't have that conversation recorded in scripture. I think that would have been a fascinating scene to have recorded in the scripture, you know, uh, I don't know why it's not recorded. Maybe James said swear words or something when Jesus appeared and scared him to death. I don't know, but it's not recorded. It would have been fascinating. But here's what I do know. Something happened 2,000 years ago on a Sunday morning like this when Jesus appeared to his family members and said, I'm really who I claim to be. You know, sometimes our families don't tell us the whole truth. I think the whole DNA testing thing that's, happening now. I know many of you have rediscovered biological parents through that, and uh, you're connecting with family members you didn't even know were family members, and I think that's cool and fascinating, and we're learning things about our heritage. I'm a little sympathetic to Elizabeth Warren right now. Yeah, all my life I was told we're Indian, 
they showed me pictures of grandparents, great grandparents and this and that and said, full blood Indian, full blood Indian, Indian princess, Indian medicine man, shaman. This is Pocahontas. This is Geronimo. These are your people, Bobby. It's not true. Mm. So when Trump criticizes her, I feel a little sympathetic for her because I've lied as well. I don't have any Indian in me. Instead, I have one or two percent slave blood from Sierra Leone. Yeah, I'm black. Just kidding. I'm a little black and uh, I'm a little white and I'm a little European and I'm a lot mixed up. Listen, our families are very unique and our families don't always tell us what is the honest truth. I think they tell us what they think is the truth. I was told I was an Indian. My people thought we were Indian. But somewhere, somebody made that up in my family, and they knew better. When Mary was telling her children, I conceived Jesus before Joseph and I came together, and she told the rest of her kids that, can you imagine what went on in their home? Can you imagine the eye rolling and the, oh, mom, we're old enough now that we know that can't be true. Mom, you've lied. You know, they thought it was all made up family stuff to cover up something. Guess what? Mary was telling the truth. And on Easter Sunday morning, 2000 years ago, they realized, James in particular, realized his mother had not lied to him. Jesus was not stretching the truth. He was the son of God. So let me say it this way. We don't believe Jesus died and rose again because the Bible tells us so. That's simplistic. That's childish. That's oversimplifying the whole thing. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus because hundreds, hundreds, Paul said more than 500, hundreds of people, eyewitnesses, saw the risen Christ, had interaction with a man who was dead, buried, and is back from the dead again. And these people recorded their testimony. They told us what they saw and experienced. And many of these people died for their faith in the resurrection. They, they went to their martyrdom telling this story. They believed it so deeply. All right, let's interact a minute. What confirms Jesus' Messiahship? Let's go back to some interaction here. What is the confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah? The resurrection, A, B, his death, C, his sinless life, or D, the Holy Spirit confirms it. What is the confirmation of Jesus' Messiahship according to the scriptures we're reading right now? Well, in Romans chapter one, Paul said, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul said it is the resurrection that actually confirms the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. God did what no one was expecting. Resurrection is not going off to heaven somewhere. The resurrection is about a transformation Someone who was dead is now alive again. So I want to remind you of our question. When did people start believing about the resurrection of Jesus? 
So was it hundreds of years later that they figured all of this out and made up this legend? Well, the answer to this question is actually found in the first church confession. Many Christian groups recite confessions or creeds, uh, some together in their services or in their discipleship time. Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed or this creed or that creed. If you're a Baptist, Assembly of God, Church of Christ, or you know, one, of, one of the evangelicals, non-denomination, you probably didn't grow up saying a creed or studying a creed. Uh, we have typically not been confessional type creed people. One of the big things we're really discussing among the elders of the church right now is maybe we need to get back to that a little bit and we need to put some creeds back in front of our people that are simple, easy to understand and get right to the heart of what we actually believe. Maybe we need to refamiliarize ourselves with this. To them, a confession was like a poem or a rhyme, contains a simple expression of what we believe. Some estimated that only about 15% of the population in the first century could read or write. I don't know if that's true or not, but I've heard many scholars say illiteracy was much larger uh, in, in the first century than it is in modern culture. And one of the ways uh, they taught people, one of the ways they passed truths generationally to people was through confessions or creeds. They memorized rhyming uh, truths that could be memorized and repeated much the way you and I memorize scriptures. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Much the way we would memorize a scripture, they memorized a creed. Remember, the scriptures weren't written yet in totality. All that New Testament that you and I memorize, they're just now, hadn't even been written, many of it, until the later part of the first century, that third period of the first century. So they memorized creeds, and this is the way they passed on truths to one another. The earliest followers of Christ had a confession that they all 100% believed. And before I read it, I want to remind you of the question. When did they start believing in the resurrection of Jesus? I think what makes this easiest to understand is to use a timeline. So let, let me use a timeline. Uh, and again, we don't know the exact year Jesus was born. It could be 3 B.C., it could be zero, right? You know, that one right in there. But most scholars think just pre-BC. So let me use that scheme to lay it out for you. So Jesus is crucified around 30 AD. We're close with this number. Give or take a year, 30 AD, Jesus was crucified. Three years later, the apostle Paul became a believer. By 33, Paul has accepted Christ. He's been converted in that period, he was trying to kill Christians. Now the persecutor is promoting Christianity. He's one of us. He spent the next three years studying the scriptures. Much of what Paul learned by 36, he's going up to Jerusalem to meet Peter. In that gap, three-year gap, Paul even says in his own writings, I was out in the deserts of Arabia and by revelation, God was teaching me really some mysteries and things about how the Jews and Gentiles were forced together in the body of Christ and a lot of things that had never been taught. Never been taught. Never, again, they were there, but the lenses had never focused them correctly. 
in the Old Testament, it talks about the Gentiles also coming to belief. But at the first century and at the crucifixion of Christ, the Jews thought it was all about them. Well, Paul's going to get some revelation from Christ where he goes back and he can see the Bible narrative very clearly that the gospel is also for the Gentiles. And he becomes the big missionary to the Gentiles, to Europe, to our forefathers, to get us to this present hour of Christianity. But after three years of revelation, he goes up to Jerusalem to meet an original apostle. Paul thinks it's important to go have a conversation with one of the originals. I know what God taught me out here. Now I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, I'm going to meet Peter, and I've got a whole list of questions I want to ask him. And I want to compare notes and see if what God told me and what Jesus told him line up. And guess what? They did line up. As a matter of fact, Paul had some understanding that Peter didn't have, especially in the practical application of some of these scriptures. So Paul goes up to, to meet Peter. They compare notes. They're on the same page. Then Paul goes to Europe on the missionary journeys. In 52, Paul now uh, goes to Corinth. Uh, he's making disciples uh, in Corinth, in Europe. And by 55, he's going to write 1 Corinthians. Now, in case you don't know, I would really admonish everyone this week, just maybe tomorrow morning or even this afternoon while you're reflecting, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's Paul's great dissertation on the resurrection that I began with this morning. If there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised and our hope is lost. This is where Paul really is talking about the resurrection in his writing that happened around 55. We only have a gap of about 20 years. Six years after the actual events, Paul and Peter are comparing notes. They already have the first creed of the New Testament church being shared. Paul and Peter take that creed and for the next 20 years they're making disciples. When Paul's making disciples at Corinth, we know the creed is already established and the belief in the resurrection is already established because Paul writes the creed down in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, the common confession, the common belief of these early Christians. Here's what I want you to see. This isn't hundreds of years. This is six years from the actual events. They're all in agreement what happened at the event. If it wasn't right, Peter could have said, no, I was there. It didn't happen like that. Or other people in Jerusalem living could have said, no, it didn't happen. We were there. E even here, Jews have migrated over to Europe. They know about the events of Jerusalem. If it didn't happen the way Paul said it, there are people right here who could stand up and say, I protest, I was there, that didn't really happen. But it did happen and they were all in agreement. It was without refutation. So let's cover the territory again. Paul meets with Peter. It's recorded in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18. Then three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him 15 days. And I saw none other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And again, Paul knew the story that I wish I knew. He sat there and had a Starbucks with James 
and said, okay, what was it like growing up in the house of Jesus? Oh my goodness. I bet that drove you crazy, didn't it? Yeah. He did everything right. You couldn't do anything right. Yeah. 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 Some of us have lived that, right? And, uh, and I bet he had a nice conversation there and he learned about Jesus as a man from a brother, from a family member. He learned about Jesus from Simon Peter, the first batch of disciples, an original apostle. By the time Peter and Paul are meeting six years after the events, they have the common confession. It gets written into the writings in 55. Let me read it for you. Here is the church's first confession. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number three. For I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared. Here is the first creed. He appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the twelve, and he appeared and he appeared and he appeared to five hundred. Many are still alive. It's no legend. You can talk to them all. They'll all tell you the same story. A few have fallen asleep, but most are alive. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. Now, when you read this, this is the church's first common confession. They all knew it. They may have even recited it when they met together to worship. Here is the first confession recorded in 52, 55. A.D. Let's put the confession up. Christ died for our sins and was buried. Christ rose from the grave and was seen. Listen, if you want to, if you want to tweet something, if you want to social media something this week, here's a confession that's been around for more than 2,000 years. Christians have been publishing this message. Christ died when he was originally dying on the cross, they didn't have this understanding until after the resurrection. Then they saw, oh, he's not just dying in humiliation. He's dying for our sins. He's the Passover lamb, the lamb slain before. This is the lamb of God that takes away. The, then, the, then the full comprehension began to happen. So their confession was Christ died for our sins. According to the scripture, he was buried. He rose from the grave and was seen. Christ died for our sins and was buried. Christ rose from the grave and was seen. If you can remember those two phrases, you have put into your heart the common confession of Christianity for 2,000 years. According to all the scholars, the evidence that is the most credible is that evidence that happened very close to the actual events. And, and Paul's letter is evidence that within six years and then later within 20 years of the actual events, all of Christianity had a common understanding and a common belief. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the grave and was seen. All right, let me give you your last question this morning. True or false, Paul in 1 Corinthians quotes an official summary of the gospel that dates about 20 years following the resurrection of Jesus. The answer is true. 
Within 20 years, we have a rock-solid confession that's been recorded and dispersed throughout all of the Roman Empire. And Paul's letter proved that a belief in the resurrection began the very Sunday that Jesus rose from the grave. And that belief only grew stronger with time. Some people would say, well, Christianity invented this legend of the resurrection. Christianity did not create the resurrection. The resurrection is what created Christianity. We are believers this morning in the same thing they believed 2,000 years ago. We believe in a risen Savior today. Let that fill your heart with all the possibilities of what a risen Christ means to you today. It means hope is here. It means forgiveness is available. It means he is the first fruits of the new creation. It means that you and I are joined to him together in faith and baptism, and we are now a part of the new creation. Therefore, dot, dot, dot. How should that change our lives this week? Live in the life of Christ. Thank you guys for spending some time in the word this morning. Happy Easter to you. Pastor David's going to come and close us in prayer here. Come and pull up next to me, David. Next Sunday, heaven and hell. We're going to talk about in the next few weeks what it means to be fully human. Because Because we're not. That's right. We're going to talk about zombies. We're going to talk about understanding heaven and hell. Yep. Uh, we're going to talk about our destiny, That's right. our design. Jesus didn't die and rise again so you could go to heaven for eternity. I know. I know. <laughs> Next week, we'll talk a little more about that. It'll be a very intriguing series for you. Listen celebrate today with your family the sun is shining hide easter eggs tell them about jesus pray over your lunch in a few minutes and thank god for all that he did to give us the hope that we have this morning pray for us david father we're so thankful um, that we get even this opportunity to celebrate uh even over this digital space together uh your the power of your resurrection um the power that we see displayed not only through the resurrection but through the crucifixion what you've accomplished on our behalf for us and in us. Uh, as Pastor said today, we've now been granted your resurrection life in our own lives now. And we adopt not only the teachings and ideas of Jesus, but we adopt your very life in yeah. us. And our hearts are transformed and changed to be like you now. Um, God, I, I pray this week that we would be able to answer that dot, 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 therefore question. That we would be able to then live out um, our lives with the understanding and the realization that what we do um, and how we live and how we think and how we speak and how we react to people all matters. And we should be conforming those um, those ways of being into uh, um, um, or, or around you and how you've called us to be and to live. We want to we live like you've called us to live this week. And so challenge us and move us forward out of this truth and belief in the resurrection Help us to be people who are bringing heaven about where we live um, and how we live because we're modeling our lives after you. We love you so much. Thank you again for this wonderful Easter service. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.